Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name's Aaron. I'm the pastor here at uh, Darabin Presbyterian Church. Uh, I think there's a bunch of new people here, uh, so warm welcome to you. Hopefully, I get to chat with you afterwards. If I kind of uh, have this vision impairment, uh, so if it looks like I'm looking at you intently, but I'm completely dissing you, don't take offence, uh, uh, because it's probably not that. It could be, but it's probably not. Uh, good. On that note, let me pray, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do uh, thank you that you gather us as your people, that you want to speak to us through your word. And we do pray that this day you would lift our eyes to you, uh, that you would make your word sing in our hearts and minds for the glory of our Lord Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I wanted to start by telling a, a little joke, uh, which is perhaps risky. I'm not actually a naturally very funny person uh, when I'm preaching. Uh, so, but here we go. Here's this uh, joke. It's a joke with a, a point. So, uh, at one time, uh, there were these three men. They were hiking through a forest, and they came to a wide river. It was raging. It was foaming. Uh, massive rapids. Uh, but of course, they had to get to the other side. Uh, the map told them that. Uh, so they prayed. To, uh, so the first man prayed to God. He said, "God, please give me the strength to cross this river." And just like that, God miraculously gave him these massive arms, these strong legs, uh, so he could swim across the river. It took him just two hours, uh, and he only nearly drowned twice. Right? Massive success. Uh, so the, his friend, uh, who'd witnessed what he'd, uh, how he'd just got across the river, uh, he also prayed to God. He said, God, please give me the strength and the tools to cross this river. And just like that, God gave him a rowboat as well as the strong arms and the strong legs. And so he was able to row across the river. It took him just one hour, uh, and uh, he only nearly capsized once. Uh, so the third man, right, seeing what both his friends had gone through, uh, the third man prayed to God, God, please give me the strength, the tools, and the, uh, and the intelligence to cross this river. And, and just like that, in a moment, he was transformed into a woman who took a look at the map again and walked 100 metres down the river and crossed at the bridge. That's, I mean, that's what happens with me when Gabby tells me to take another look at the map. So anyway, the point is that what you're looking at in life, right, what you choose to focus on, uh, what your perspective is, makes a massive difference to how you live. That's the point. Perspective is all important. Uh, last week, uh, the first chapter of Haggai ended with the people of Judah. They'd been stirred up by God's word. It was really a great revival. Uh, so that finally, after 16 years, uh, they were uh, giving themselves to the task of rebuilding God's temple uh, for his glory. Wonderful moment. The people of God are full of passion and hope and optimism, zealous for the cause of God. And if you look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 15, if you've got a Bible, you'll see uh, that the date on that day was the 24th day of the sixth month, uh, the equivalent of uh, uh, September the 21st, 520 uh, BC. Uh, but then this chapter opens by telling us that less than one month later, right, the 21st day of the seventh month, October the 17th, uh, the situation's completely changed. All the passion and hope and optimism has disappeared and it's been replaced uh, by a growing sense of discouragement, of depression, uh, of real despondency. And what we see in verses 1 to 3 is that the source of that discouragement is the wrong perspective of God's people. That's, what, that's what's causing this uh, discouragement. They're discouraged because they're spending all their time looking back. This is the first point in my sermon. Let's read from, from verse 1. Haggai says... On the 21st day of the seventh month, 
uh, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, uh, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, uh, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who, is, uh, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Right, so uh, among this remnant of God's people, the people of Judah, uh, there still would have been some people who are old enough to remember the glory of Solomon's temple. Right, Solomon's temple uh, in all its magnificence. Right, so when those older people amongst God's people compared the glory of Solomon's temple with, with these kind of ruins that lay before them that everyone else is getting excited about, uh, they felt incredibly discouraged. Or perhaps you can hear them saying, but, but, but you guys just don't get it. Right? No matter how hard we work on these ruins, they're never going to be as glorious as Solomon's temple was. And of course, the more these older members of the community said things like that, the more all of God's people became discouraged. Right? It only took a matter of weeks, less than one month. Uh, the same thing happened 16 years before this, when they first came back to Jerusalem, came, they returned from Babylon. And they'd started rebuilding the temple, they'd laid the foundations. And if you read Ezra alongside Haggai, that's a useful thing to do. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, we read this. Uh, With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, and His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people uh, gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Why? Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. All the people gave a great shout of praise, except for some. But many of the older priests and Levites and family friends who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. Right? The truth is that Zerubbabel, right? the, the governor of Judah at this point in time, uh, he just didn't have the resources to build a temple as glorious as Solomon's. Solomon's temple had this cedar, cedar panelling, gold furnishings, burnished bronze. It really was magnificent, but Zerubbabel just didn't have that stuff. So some of the older members of God's people, they looked back at Solomon's temple and they were so discouraged, so discouraged that they wept loudly. Of course, in doing that, they revealed that their perspective was all wrong. They were focusing on all the wrong things, at least three things. The first is that they were focusing on the externals of their religion rather than the internals of their religion, if I can put it that way. Their memories were just captivated by the external glory of Solomon's temple, so much so that they seemed to believe that its external glory was much more important than the glory of any worship that was actually happening inside the temple. But, of course, we know that it's not the glory of buildings themselves that pleases God. It's the glory of the worship happening inside buildings that pleases God. So in Mark 13, Jesus' disciples are kind of walking past Herod's temples and Herod's temple, and his disciples comment on just how magnificent they are. It is, rather. So they say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what, what magnificent buildings. Surely Jesus is impressed. But Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 
But in saying that, he's not just predicting what's going to happen in 70 AD, right, when the, the Roman general Titus overthrows, kind of destroys this temple. He's also saying, he's giving us an insight into, or he's hinting at why this temple is going to be destroyed. It's because the worship happening inside it does not bring to God. We know that because in Mark 11, a couple of chapters before this, in verses 16 and 17, he said uh, that this temple, as magnificent as it looked on the outside, had become a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. God is much more concerned about the glory of the worship happening inside our church buildings than about the glory of the buildings themselves. So where does that leave us here in Australia? Oh, not quite like Europe, perhaps, or other parts of the world where they've got much more spectacular cathedrals, but we, we do have some really quite beautiful cathedrals in Australia, magnificent church buildings, millions of dollars, probably billions of dollars spent every year on preserving and restoring those buildings. Is God pleased with that? Oh, I guess it depends. It depends on the sort of worshiping, uh, worship happening inside the buildings. If the worship in those buildings is, is mainly focused on external ritual, on outward form, then God's not that impressed. But if it's focused on the clear proclamation of the gospel, a, a, a faithful teaching of the word of God, uh, then God, God's okay with that. Right, that, that worship happening inside the glorious building also brings glory to God. Right? Because buildings do indeed have their place. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong uh, with a magnificent building, a beautiful building. Uh, after all, God didn't just make a, a, a functional world. He made a beautiful world. Right? There's all sorts of things. Why, why so many different types of insects? You know, so for those who like to study insects, there's lots of stuff for them to get into, right? It's not just functional, it's, it's beautiful, it's over the top. Right, so, so I pray that one day our church would have a building of its own that is both functional and beautiful. I pray for that. Uh, but we do have to keep the right perspective. Right, we've got to remember that what's most important is not the externals of our, our worship, our beautiful building, but the internals of our worship. Right, hearts that have been renewed by God's Spirit and are genuinely glorifying our God. So God's people are discouraged, first because they're preoccupied with the externals of their religion, second because they're glorifying the past. Right? Instead of being thankful for what God's doing in the present, right? he's brought them back from Babylon, right? that, that's a pretty big deal. He's brought them to Jerusalem, he's given them a chance to, to restore Jerusalem and the temple. Instead of being thankful for all those things and kind of looking forward to the next chapter of what God's going to do, these people are just looking back to the good old days. You know, the good old days when, when, when the Sunday school was full and there were lots of kids in the youth group and, and people actually cared about Christian values and the church and its leaders had pride of place in the local community. Those were the good old days. It's the good old days syndrome, right, where we look back at the past with this kind of somewhat naive sentimentality as if everything was just perfect back then. Now, there maybe are some things that were better back then. Right? Each generation has its advantages. Right? But, but there's a bit of this good old day syndrome in Haggai's day. 
And there's nothing inherently wrong with looking back to the past, right? I, I studied uh, an arts degree at university. Uh, I got a major in history. Lots of time looking back at the past. Absolutely no problem with doing that, as long as it inspires us to actually do something in the present. Uh, but often it doesn't, does it? Often we, we can get so discouraged that the, the glories of the past aren't being repeated in our day that we end up doing nothing. We just want to give up. Right, that can happen for whole communities, whole churches. Right? That's what's happening in Haggai's day. Uh, of course, it can also happen for individual Christians. Right, some of you perhaps are doing this today. You look back to what God was doing in your life uh, six months ago, one year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and instead of being in, in thankful and being inspired to live for him today, tomorrow, next week, uh, you're just kind of paralyzed by discouragement. Why is it that God isn't acting in the same way that he did back then right now? The people of Judah are discouraged because they're focused on the externals of the religion and because they're, they're kind of caught up in the past, glorifying the past in an unhelpful way. And third, they're making false comparisons. Oh, we've already seen this, uh, touched on this a bit, that they're comparing the, the present temple, uh, its ruins really, with Solomon's temple. Uh, it's a false comparison, of course, but because the circumstances in Solomon's day are completely different to the circumstances in Zerubbabel's day. Right? Solomon, he, he ruled uh, over a period of economic abundance for Israel. Uh, if you read in 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings uh, says, uh, I think, oh, what chapter is it? I've got a note here. It's verse 27. Yeah, that's a fun exercise. Look it up. I forgot what chapter it was. Uh, but it says, uh, Silver was as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar was as plentiful in Jerusalem as sycamore trees. Right, that's the kind of abundance, the, the, the prosperity that uh, Solomon and uh, his reign enjoyed. Right? So, uh, Zerubbabel, on the other hand, uh, was ruling over a land that had been decimated by the Babylonians. was in ruin. He had virtually no resources to build this temple. He just had to use what he had, what God had provided for him. So it was incredibly unhelpful for God's people to kind of make these false comparisons to Solomon's day. Likewise, it's unhelpful for us to be looking over our shoulder at other churches and comparing ourselves to them. Getting discouraged because, well, their church is bigger than ours. They're seeing more conversions than ours. They're, they're, uh, and their services are just so much better. Right? Their music's better. I don't know. Have you, have you seen their multimedia? It would blow your mind. And the preaching, well, that is so much better than our church. Right? And I, I follow their social media. They get heaps more likes on their Facebook posts. We really shouldn't compare ourselves like that. Right? We should just get on with doing the work that God has called us to. Right? Making disciples, building his church. And we should do that with all the resources that he actually has provided for us. Wonderful people. Giving generously of their time, their talents and their treasure. Let's make the most of what's given us. Not be envious of the resources that he's given to some other church. Oh, you're not like that church. So, well, you know, what's the point? Right in verses 1 to 3, the people of Judah are discouraged because they're, they're only looking back and it's becoming really unhelpful for them. Right, so in verses 4 and 5, God encourages them. Have a look at verse 4. 
Uh, but now be strong, Zerubbabel uh, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you uh, people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Right? God clearly doesn't want his people to be discouraged or disheartened. Right? Three times he says, be strong, be strong, be strong. Right? Be strong so that you can keep doing the work of rebuilding my temple. I think we've all experienced this. On one level, it's really not that hard to start things. To start a new project or course or, or book, perhaps. Some of us have massive stacks of books that we're kind of uh, that 30% through, 40% through, 50% through. You know, like when was the last time you finished a book? Right? Most of us are quite good at starting things. It's finishing things that's quite hard. And that's what's confronting the people of Judah uh, in this poem, and that's true of the Christian life. Right? Lots of people start the Christian life with real enthusiasm, with, uh, with a whole lot of passion. But then for all sorts of reasons, they get discouraged. And sadly, some of them just give up. And we have to remember Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Right? Matthew 10, verse 22, Jesus says, uh, It's the one who stands firm to the end who will be saved. So God encourages these people to do that, right? to be strong, to, to stand firm. But notice that, that this is not a call to kind of look inside yourself and, and kind of muster up all your strength, take on the world, stand firm for the Lord. That's not what he's doing. right? He, he doesn't want them to, to look inside themselves, but to look up to him. He says, be strong for, because I am with you. And my spirit remains among you. When you feel discouraged in the Christian life, in Christian ministry perhaps, you can find new strength by remembering that the Lord Almighty is with you. His spirit dwells in you. He'll give you all you need to complete the work he's called you to. And that's why the Psalms repeatedly say, I mean, Gabby and I got married, when we got married, we had a song from Psalm 121. As I start, lift up your eyes to the hills, for where does your help come from? My help only comes from the maker of heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth. Lift up, you see. We get so absorbed in the discouragements of our lives. We need to lift up our eyes to our glorious Lord and remember that he is with us. As so God's people are discouraged by looking back. They're encouraged by looking up. Uh, in verses 6 to 9, we see that they're kind of filled with hope as they look forward right, to what God uh, is promising to do. And now verses 6 to 9, are actually, uh, they're actually pretty complicated. People much smarter than me uh, come to some different conclusions about these verses. But I think it's certainly the overall purpose of these verses is very clear. Right? God uh, wants to encourage us. He wants to strengthen us. Uh, he wants to fill us with hope. Right, so I'm hoping that that's what is achieved as I unpack these four promises. Right, I want you to be filled with hope uh, as we look at these four wonderful promises. We'll, we'll spend most of our time on the first promise in, in verses 6 and 7, uh, where God promises that he will shake the nations. Have a look there from the start of verse 6. Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Uh, in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. Well, what does it mean that, that God is going to shake the nations? 
Well, maybe, right? But maybe the, the history, uh, the kind of story of the Bible helps us out a bit with that, right? Because throughout the story of the Bible, God has already done considerable shaking of the nations. Right? You might remember, he, he shook the empire of Egypt, sent all those plagues upon them. He, he destroyed uh, Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Right? All so he could bring his people out of Egypt to, to be his own, so they could worship him. And then later in the Old Testament, he shook the empire of Babylon. We heard a bit about that last week, right? He raised up King Cyrus, leader of the Persian Empire, who defeated the Babylonians and decreed that God's people could return to the promised land. God has a history of shaking the nations. And here he's promising promising God's people that in a little while he will do it again. He'll shake the nations through a whole series of social and political upheavals. Uh, so he says down in verses 21 and 22, we'll look at these next week, but he says down in verse 21, tells Zerubbabel, uh, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Notice the same language. Uh, what's this shaking going to look like? Well, God says, I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. We'll talk about that more next week. But the point is, in the next five centuries until the coming of Christ, that's exactly what God did. He shook up the nations again. So the Persian Empire, which had been conquered by the, uh, the uh, which had previously conquered the Babylonian Empire, was conquered by the Greeks. Right? Some of you have heard of Alexander the Great. Right? God raised him up for this uh, for this particular time. And then, uh, and then uh, the Greek Empire uh, was shaken by the Roman Empire. The dominant empire during the New Testament times. So God fulfilled this promise, right? In the next five centuries, he shook the nations. Our God is the Lord of nations. He is completely sovereign over every nation. And to fulfill his purposes in his world for his glory, he will raise up or bring down any nation he wants at any time. All nations seem impregnable. No one could, these kind of great empires, no one could ever take them down. God can in a moment. You read Isaiah, it talks about God whistling for empires to come, like a a person might whistle for their dog. Our God is absolutely sovereign. And of course, all this shaking of nations that happened before Christ came uh, was so that the good news about Christ could spread to the nations. So, for example, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see why it was so important that during that period of the Greek Empire, uh, the Greek language became the dominant uh, language of this whole region. Why was that important? Paul was able to uh, to, uh, preach and write in Greek wherever he went. And people were able to understand him. Uh, The Hebrew Old Testament had been translated into Greek, so both Jews and Gentiles had that. Uh, They could uh, read it for themselves. The New Testament was written in Greek. Our sovereign God brought Alexander the Great and his Greek empire to prominence for a period of time for his purposes in his world for his glory, you see. That's why that happened. Same with the Roman Empire. No accident. Paul was a Roman citizen. Something, if you read the book of Acts, you see was very helpful for the spread of the gospel. The extensive system of Roman roads made it much easier for the gospel to spread. Uh, What was called the Pax Romana, Roman peace, that made it uh, relatively safe for early Christians to travel along those roads and spread the gospel. 
to achieve his purposes in his world for his glory, our God has and will shake the nations. He rules over all of them. And so don't get your knickers in a twist too much by Donald, if you do, if that's the way you roll. And of course, he'll do this again, ultimately, when Christ returns. Uh, we know that because in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 26, the writer of Hebrews uh, quotes this very verse from Haggai. Hebrews 12, verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Uh, the words once more there indicate uh, the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What is it that, that will remain? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying that when Christ returns, anything and anyone that isn't firmly established in Christ's kingdom, anything will be shaken and destroyed. The kingdom of Christ is the only kingdom that will last forever, the only kingdom that will not be shaken. You see a similar thing in Daniel 2. I can't unpack that. But read about the story of these, these kind of consecutive kingdoms that are all going to be shaken, but then the kingdom you least expect will last forever, you see. One day Christ's kingdom, the kingdom that brings life and peace and blessing, will come on earth as it is in heaven, and unlike any earthly kingdom, uh, it, his kingdom will never be shaken. Our second great promise God makes in these verses, it's in verse 7. Uh, Haggai says there, and what is desired uh, by all nations, I think that's an interpretation, by all nations, it could just be of all nations, uh, will come. You hit there, like we were talking about translation there, this phrase is probably the most difficult in this passage. Uh, there are three main interpretations. I don't normally go into all these. I normally just say this is what it is, but there's a fair bit of debate, so let me tell you. The first uh, is that some people think this is a reference to Christ. Right, so Christ is the one uh, who is desired by all nations. Now, I, I like the idea that Christ is desired by all nations, but I just don't think that's the case, is it? Christ has never been desired by all nations. Uh, Christ, on the contrary, has been rejected by all nations, including his own. We saw that in John chapter 1. So I don't, I don't think this can be Christ. Uh, the second possible interpretation is that Haggai is talking about uh, the desired stuff of all nations, right? the wealth, the riches of all nations. Right? So the idea is that one day all the nations will bring their riches to God's temple. And there's some evidence for that, right? They would say, that, well, look in verse 8. That's why silver and gold are mentioned here. And I'm not fully... I mean, this is better than the first one, right? But I think all verse eight's doing is assuring Zerubbabel that God is going to provide everything he needs to rebuild the temple. Saying, all the silver and gold in the world is mine. You know, don't sweat it. I've got it covered. So for what it's worth, I think the best interpretation of this uh, promise, which does tweak the NIV's translation a bit, because it's, it's that uh, what is desired of all nations, not by, but of, right? what is desired of all nations is a people from all nations. So I think what's being said here is that in uh, every nation and tribe and language, that kind of Revelation 7 uh, type language, and 5, uh, there are people who Christ desires. 
there are people that he wants. He wants them to be a part of his people, to be his treasured possession. And God's promise here is that those people will come to Christ. Right? This is what this is the glory that will fill God's house. Right? Not uh, material wealth, but people from every nation who've come to Christ and together are glorifying him. I think that's the way that the trajectory of the Bible takes us. Which brings us to the third promise in these verses. Uh, in verse 9, God says, uh, The glory of this present house uh, will be greater than the glory of the former house. Now remember that those people in Haggai's day who are kind of particularly captivated by the glory uh, of Solomon's temple. I put yourself in their shoes. Uh, for them, this, this must have seemed uh, completely ridiculous, wouldn't it? Like, are you nuts? This temple is never going to be as glorious, let alone more glorious, than Solomon's. Of course, the glory God's speaking about here isn't uh, the kind of physical glory, it's magnificence. Uh, The glory he's speaking about is a spiritual glory. The reality is that no matter how glorious Solomon's temple was, or Zerubbabel's temple was, or, or even Herod's temple was, their glory passed away, didn't it? They were all ruined. They didn't have a lasting glory, an eternal glory. But if the, if the glory that is being spoken about here is the glory of us as God's people, his ultimate temple, his spiritual temple, then our glory, as those who have been saved from every tribe and, and nation and language, our glory will last forever. Our glory is much superior than the glory of Solomon's temple. And I say that we're a part of God's people, we're a part of his people who've been saved from, from every nation because of the last part, the last promise there in verse 9. Have a look there. Uh, it says, In this place, God says, I will grant peace. In this place, I will grant peace. Uh, perhaps some of you know that that, that word peace uh, is a, the Hebrew word shalom. You might have heard that word before, shalom. It's, it's more than getting rid of a bit of hostility or conflict. It's bringing about a state of complete healing, of, of blessing, uh, of overflowing, kind of flourishing. So this is a wonderful promise. Right? Don't we all know that our lives, our families, our communities, our workplaces, uh, this world we live in are just not as they should be. They're not at peace. There's all sorts of mess, brokenness, injustice, and sin. And here God's promising that in this place, right here in Jerusalem, he will do something one day that will deal with all the mess. It will bring shalom, absolute healing and blessing and flourishing to our whole world. What is it? Some of you think, what is it that God does in, in this place in Jerusalem to grant peace? He sends his one and only son to die on the cross for us. To die on the cross for our sins. Right? Because if there's going to be any real peace right, in a relationship where there's been deep hurt, right? like the one between us and God, where we've ignored God or rejected God or betrayed God. right? If You, you know this. If you've been in a relationship where you've been ignored and, and rejected and betrayed, if there's going to be real peace, any sort of real peace in that relationship, it is not cheap, is it? Someone must pay the cost. Someone must absorb the cost to make peace. And that's what God does in, in sending Christ, his son, to die on the cross. He, he pays the cost of peace. That we might be at peace with him, 
uh, that we might be at peace with one another, right? A, a new humanity, uh, and that one day our whole world might be at peace. In this place, God says, I will grant peace. I think a fair amount of our discouragement in life uh, comes about because we don't have the right perspective. Right? Where we're focusing on the wrong things. And that's, what, how, that's what was happening for the people of Judah. Where we've seen that today, that, that when uh, where we're looking back Right, to do our uh, apparently glorious past. Right, sometimes we've kind of amped that up a bit. It's a bit more glorious in hindsight than it ever was when we were there. But to our apparently glorious past, it's not that hard to get discouraged. Right, things were so much better back then. And when we're looking up to, to our uh, glorious God, it's not that hard to be encouraged. And when we're looking forward to our glorious hope, uh, I'm going to say it's not that hard to persevere in the work God's called us to. Uh, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, uh, to build his church for his glory. Uh, let me pray. Uh, gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that this day that you might work in us, uh, in our hearts and minds and wills by the power of your spirit. That you might reveal to us where we're focusing, uh, setting our heart or mind on the wrong things where our perspective's wrong. I set us free from looking back at the past in unhelpful ways that breed discouragement and despondency, disillusionment. I help us to lift our eyes to you, our Lord and God, the one who loves us and gave your son for us, that we might be at peace with you. And help us, Father, to look forward to our glorious hope, these wonderful promises of a kingdom that will last forever. Oh, Father, um, yeah, for the day on which uh, your glory will fill this world and all will be at peace. Uh, perfect shalom. We look forward to this. Please encourage our hearts and fill us with hope, I pray. Amen.